Our Bible reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 1, which is on page 186. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. Thanks very much, Helen. Well, as we come to God's word, let's uh, let's pray and ask for his help this evening. Father God, we come to you as a holy God, a faithful God. And Lord, we come to you, we want to know you better, we want to understand you more. We come to you as uh, those who are your created beings. We come to you acknowledging our our limitations, our limited minds. We acknowledge that your ways are not our ways. And Lord, we come asking for your help this evening. We come asking that you would explain this, this passage to us. We ask that you would explain yourself to us, that you would reveal more of yourself to us. Lord, if we're coming with our own presuppositions, we pray that you would uh, help us to cast them aside and just to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, help us to trust in you and to love you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by God's grace, most of us here, I guess, this evening have um, not experienced war. We may have um, read about it in our history books if we were paying attention at school. Um, might have read some, fil- watched some films. We might have seen it on TV. But many of us will not have come face to face with war. 
And so where there is a terrorist attack on this country, as we've had uh, in recent times, it fills us with a sense of fear and, uh, and anger. If we put our trust in God, he is a God of love. Um, the gospel is all about God's love for us. And so when we read passages like this one in Deuteronomy, it, it disturbs us. It leaves us with the, the question, how could a God of love condone such action, let alone command it? It's passages like this that atheists like Richard Dawkins have used to condemn Christianity. This is what Dawkins writes in the, the God Delusion. He writes that God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, as Christians, we know that is not the God we know and we love, and we find such words quite offensive. But we may also find such passages as this in the Bible hard and find it to respond, difficult to respond to people when they raise such questions. So, so how should we understand passages like this in the, the Old Testament? Well, like Mark did last week, we need to put in some place some, some foundation stones about God from the Bible before we try and understand the specific historical event that's discussed here, and before we then try to apply that to our lives today. Because the whole of the Bible, even passages like this, um, are relevant for us today. They teach us something about God, and they teach us something about ourselves. So these are the building blocks we're going to be putting in place this evening. We're going to be looking at God. We're going to be looking at um, them then. We're going to be looking at us now. That's where we're going. But before we get started, we need to address an even more fundamental question, and that concerns the inspiration of the Bible and how we read it, because although Dawkins' description was of the God of the Old Testament, we need to be clear that there's no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, were all present throughout the events recorded in the Bible. God's nature doesn't change. God himself says, I, the Lord, do not change. In God's word, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's attributes, his, his holiness, his justice, his love, his mercy are present throughout the Bible. What does change is that uh, God reveals more and more of himself and his plan of salvation over time. It's what we call progressive revelation. So what you can't do is look at a passage in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Now, that's the classic tactic of an atheist who seeks to portray God in a negative light. One reason why we might think of God as different in the Old Testament is because we find it difficult to think outside of the physical world. So we can, we can picture People being put to the sword, we find that gruesome. When we come to the apocalyptic language of, of Revelation, it's harder to, to visualize, but it's actually far more gruesome than the passage we've read. Eternal punishment is mentioned very rarely in the Old Testament, but it's very common in the New Testament. 
Likewise, we, we can picture Jesus walking the earth, doing great deeds, healing people. When we see Jesus' love in action, we, we can grasp that. But when we read of the love of God in the Old Testament, maybe it's not so, so visible. And yet God's mercy is mentioned far more times in the Old Testament than in the New. One writer's on a word study of the word mercy in the Bible. He found 261 uses of the word, of which 72% are found in the Old Testament. Likewise, the word love occurs 322 times, and 50% of those likewise are in the Old Testament. So what I hope you will see this evening is in both the Old and the New Testaments, God is a holy God. He's a God who, who cannot look upon sin, but he's also a loving, merciful, gracious, and compassionate God. He wants to forgive all those who repent. So let's start with God's holiness, the first building block. To say God is holy is to say that God is set apart from his creation. He's made everything. He's made everyone. He rules over everything and everyone. And that means he has absolute rights of, of ownership over everything and everyone. As it says in our verse 4, for the year, are yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. God's created beings, that's us, cannot question what he's doing because we can't understand everything from his point of view. We are looking at things with limited understanding. And what God wants most is for the people he has created to treat him as he is, the one true God. But he knows that ever since the fall, that that, that is impossible for people because we are all corrupt. We want to be God ourselves. So what does God do about it? Well, he chooses a nation, doesn't he? He doesn't look at the best one. None of them deserve to be chosen. But he, he chooses one and sets them apart. In other words, he makes them holy. The reason he does that is uh, that in time through this nation, he will gather people from all nations to form his people who will worship him as God and who will be with him for eternity. Israel is the nation he chooses, and he makes a covenant with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he gives them instructions, the, the Ten Commandments, about how they should relate to him and to one another. And if you look down at uh, the, the previous chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, those uh, commands are almost summarized in verse 4 there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And he goes on in verse 13 to say, fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. God is, is holy. That is his nature. That is the first foundation stone. But how does God's holiness help us understand the violence of chapter 7? Well, the first reason for this is that God needs to settle his people in a place where they will not be corrupted by other influences, where they will not be tempted to follow other gods. 
and look over the page in chapter 7, verse 3. He says, Do not intermarry with them, the other peoples. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Those same words. This is what you are to do to them. And these are the key things. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Why? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. God's main desire here is not to wipe out a nation for the sake of it. It is to preserve the holiness of his people. And it's a recognition of just how how vulnerable the, the human heart is. How easy, as humans, we make compromises. How easy we, we uh, turn to idols instead of the one true God. To take a farming analogy, if you were to, to plant a crop in a field, you wouldn't sow the seed amongst all the weeds because um, they would just get choked. You'd first plough the land, you'd remove all the, the weeds and prepare it. The removal of the nations inhabiting the promised land is for that ultimate purpose, to, to protect God's people so that they will be able to, to fulfill his plan of saving the world. But what's that got to do with us now? Well, if we belong to God, then we too are special. In the New Testament, God describes his people, the church, using the same language. In 1 Peter, he says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now notice how uh, this has now become a spiritual thing. God's people are those who've been called out of spiritual darkness. They're no longer a political nation in a particular geographical place. They are an international community who live scattered across a physical world, but who form part of a spiritual kingdom, but who one day will inherit the earth uh, when it is made new. So if we are Christians here this evening, we are holy. We are set apart. But just as the, the people of Israel were vulnerable to, to the influence of the wicked nations around them, so too we are vulnerable to the world, to the spiritual forces around us. And we've seen that recently in the spiritual battle series. We too are told to be holy, to keep ourselves from idols. And the greatest protection that we need from God is spiritual protection. And he provides that through the Holy Spirit. The key to understanding the Old Testament physical battles, the New Testament spiritual battles, is the seriousness of God's holiness. God is holy. He's made his people holy. He's set them apart. And he wants to keep his people holy. Well, secondly, what's the second foundation stone? That is that God is just. Later on in chapter 32 of, of Deuteronomy, it says, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he, just as we've just sung in one of those songs. It's easy for people to question God's justice 
when unjust things happen in this world. But simply by asking that question, what we're all effectively doing is putting ourselves uh, in the place of the judge. We're putting God in the dock and examining him, but God is the judge. He's the one who defines what justice is. If God is the one true God, then evil or wickedness or corruption are defined as anything that fails to treat God as the one true God. And God's just nature demands that he deals with corrupt people who stubbornly persist in their evil. At the time of Noah, it says in Genesis, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The earth was full of violence. God saves Noah and his family, and he sends a flood to destroy the earth, to wipe out wickedness. He promises never again to do that until the day when Jesus comes again when there will be a day of judgment. But on what basis will then people be judged? And whether they have treated God as the one true creator God, or whether they have followed the desires of their hearts and worshipped created things. So coming back to the Canaanites here in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, was God acting in a just way? Well, yes, he was. The nations that God commanded Israel to drive out were evil nations. It wasn't that they just happened to be in the way and Israel needed the land. It wasn't like some sort of divine repossession order. They were receiving their just punishment. Turn over the page to chapter 9. Have a look at what God says to Israel in verse, um, verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, Do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. The the Canaanites had plenty of time to repent of their wickedness. When Abraham was living in Canaan, God told him that his descendants would be slaves in another country, Egypt, for 400 years. But after that, they would return to Canaan. And the reason he gives for that is he says, the sin of the Amorites or the Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. For over 400 years, they became more and more hardened in their sin. What did that hardening look like? Well, we read elsewhere in Leviticus that they were, they were violent nations who, who fought against other nations. They engaged in all sort of, sorts of sexual perversions. They indulged in all sorts of religious rituals. They sacrificed children. Now, if such a country existed today, we would want to do something about it. We, we would want justice. And God makes clear to to Israel that the reason he's providing Israel with the land is nothing to do with their good deeds. It's because of the wickedness of these nations. The carrot carries on in verse 5 of chapter 9. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you 
to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Israel, too, is a stiff-necked people. Israel is not immune from God's justice. And when they later turn to idols themselves, they will be punished. So that's the the middle stone, how it applies to them then. How does that apply to us today? How do we apply God's justice to us today? Well, we're all made with a sense of justice, aren't we? We we crave for justice. We've seen that recently with the, the Grenfell Tower. Disaster. People want justice for the victims. We've seen it in Hillsborough 28 years later. People are still campaigning for justice for the victims of Hillsborough. So how will justice be done? Turn to the New Testament for a minute, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because, of course, today there are many Christians throughout the world who are experiencing persecution. And they need reassurance that justice will be done. The same was going on this time. Paul is writing to Christians in Thessalonica who were experiencing persecution. And he reassures them that justice will be done. Have a look at verse 6. We're on page 1189 of the Church Bibles. Verse 6 says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. But look what it says. When will that happen? Will it happen in this life? No, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Justice will be done, but it won't be until the day of judgment. And what many people don't appreciate that is the basis on which God will judge. Many people think that the only people who will be punished is the really bad people. They're the ones who should be punished. But actually, all of us deserve to be punished because we have rejected God and his laws. God's justice demands that we receive his punishment in proportion to our rebellion against him. And so when we die, we will all face justice. Have a look at how that carries on in verse 8. He, God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Deuteronomy 7 is therefore a picture, going back to that chapter, or a warning of the final judgment, of the eventual fate that awaits all those who set themselves against God and who refuse to repent. But the good news is that we don't have to face God's judgment. If we respond to his rescue plan, his, his plan of salvation, that is the gospel that Paul is referring to. It's the gospel where we see God's mercy, which brings us onto our third building block. God is merciful. And to say God is merciful means that at times he does not give people the judgment that they deserve. 
And as we said before, it's not just a feature of the New Testament. We find God's mercy in the Old Testament. Do you remember the book of Jonah, where we're told about the wickedness of the people of Nineveh? Jonah is sent to, to, the, to, Din, to Nineveh. He's given instructions by God. This is what God says to him. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. When Jonah eventually gets there, he gives them the message. And what do they do? Well, this is what the king says. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion or mercy turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And sure enough, we're told when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Amongst the Canaanite nations, there were also individuals who repented and who received God's mercy. One of the classic examples is the prostitute Rahab, who saw the wickedness of her own nation and protected the Israelite spies who came to check out the city of Jericho. And when that city eventually fell, she and her family were spared. Were there others who were spared? Well, there must have been because Jewish law concluded protection for foreigners living amongst them later, later on. God longs to show mercy. In Ezekiel, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Well, as the Bible goes on, it becomes clear that the rebellion against God, uh, which uh, which was so clear in the Canaanites, is found in each individual person. Even amongst God's covenant people, there is still rebellion against God. We all need God's mercy. And the good news is that God's mercy is available to all those who repent of their rebellion. And the big question, though, is, well, if God does show mercy, if he does forgive us for our sins, and we've done nothing to deserve that, how can he still be just? That's the the second foundation stone. How can he be just and merciful? How do those two go together? Well, the answer is in Jesus. If we weren't going to be punished for our sins, then someone had to take that punishment for us. But that would only work if it was a person who'd lived a sinless life. And the only person who did that was, of course, Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The sin of the world or opposition to God was laid on him. He became the one who had to be killed so that God could bless the whole world. And he did that for us for those who reject him, for those who oppose him, so that we can know what it means to be part of God's true, holy people. And that is where the violence, the sentence to destruction in Deuteronomy 7 leads. It all leads to the cross. 
It's the violent sentence that God himself, in the person of Jesus, chose to take on himself for us. Jesus becomes the person God destroys so that in him we can become the people on whom God has mercy. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. So as we read these difficult passages, let us remember that the just punishment that the Canaanites received is the punishment that we all deserve and that we will all receive unless we repent and trust in Jesus. And if we do that, we will enjoy being part of his holy people, we'll be part of his treasured possession, and we will enjoy that for the rest of eternity. God is holy. God is just. God is also merciful. What I'd like to do in a minute is just to spend some time praying, maybe just with a few people around you, um, praising God for some of the things that we've heard, for his holiness, for his justice, for his mercy. But also just spending a bit of time praying for those who need to repent, who are under God's judgment, who we'd love to see repent, come to faith, put their trust in Jesus Christ. We'll all have those friends and family who are dear to us who'd love to see come to faith. Thank you. Let's turn to prayer, shall we? And um, let's have a bit of time just praying through uh, some of these things. Let's pray for those, as we were saying before, who, who have hard hearts and um, who would love to see turn, turn to Christ. In a few minutes, we'll close with our final, final hymn. Father God, as we've looked at this uh, challenging passage this evening, we do pray that you would have given us a clearer understanding of who you are, of your holy nature, of your justice, of your mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a, a gratitude if we have put our faith in Jesus. We are part of your holy people. We are your treasured possession. And we praise you for that. And Lord, we lift up to you again all the people we've just been mentioning and others who are dear to us, who we, we long to see come to, to, to faith in Jesus Christ, to repent and put their trust in, in him for their salvation. Lord, we look ahead to that day of judgment. We want to come there with great confidence because we know that um, our sins have been washed clean. And as you look at us, you see Jesus Christ and in all his perfection. We praise you for that, uh, that mercy that is expressed in him. In his name we pray. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs>